continuation of chapter one, A Glance Back in History. Qusay assumes leadership in Mecca. The story of Qusay's ascendancy is worth telling. His mother married a man from the tribe of Qudaa called Rabi'a ibn Haram. Rabi'a took his wife and her young son to live with his tribe in the north of Arabia, close to the border with Palestine. Qusay lived there, thinking that he was Rabi'a's own child. When he was a young man, he learned that he belonged to the Quraysh and that his brother Zuhra was the chief of the Quraysh. He therefore travelled to Mecca, where he joined his brother. It was not long before the whole of Mecca recognised that Qusay was a young man of great promise. He combined a serious character with a noble heart. He made many friends. When he wanted to marry, his choice was none other than Hubba, daughter of Hulayl ibn Hubshiya, chief of the Khuza'a and master of Mecca, who held the position of the custodian of the Kaaba. Hulayl recognised the qualities of leadership in Qusay and was very fond of him. He treated him like his own son. On his deathbed, Hulayl made it known that Qusay was his choice to succeed him as the custodian of the Kaaba and ruler of Mecca. The transfer, however, was not completed without resistance from the Khuza'a. Qusay sought help from his brothers in the tribe of Qudaa, and they came over with speed and a large army to support him. He soon subdued the Khuza'a and was master of Mecca. Fighting broke out between the two sides, leading to much bloodshed. Arbitration was then agreed and the arbiter, Ya'mur ibn Awf, ruled in Qusay's favour. When Qusay was the undisputed leader of Mecca, he called in all the clans of the Quraysh, which were scattered all over the place, to come and resettle there. He assigned to each clan their district, so that they were in complete control of the whole city. All the Quraysh were extremely happy with Qusay's leadership. They called him the Assembler, because he had caused the Quraysh to regroup. They felt that he was a man of good omen. They honoured him to the extent that no man or woman from the Quraysh would be married, no consultation in any public matter, and no declaration of war could be made unless it was done in his home. His request was an order, and his word was a religion to them. He built a big hall close to the mosque to serve as a meeting place for the Quraysh, and called it Dar al-Nadwa. They assembled there for any occasion of joy or distress, held their consultations, and arranged their parties and social events there. Dar al-Nadwa was associated with Qusay, and continued to serve its purpose after his death. One of Qusay's noble acts was the initiation of a practice which came to be known as Rifada. He noted that pilgrims were always coming to Mecca from distant places. By the time they arrived, they were weary, their camels or horses in a state of utter exhaustion. They were ill-fed and ill-clothed, especially those who were of limited means. He recognised that Mecca must be much more hospitable to them. He therefore called in the Quraysh notables and said to them, People of Quraysh, you are God's neighbours and the custodians of his house who live in this consecrated city. God has chosen you for this honour. The pilgrimage season, you welcome those pilgrims who have come to visit God's house. 
revering its sanctity and performing its rituals. They are God's guests in his house. The guests most worthy of hospitality are God's guests. You must be hospitable to them. Let us then provide them with food and drink in the days of pilgrimage until they have left our city to return to their homes and families. The Quraysh responded well to Qasay's appeal and approved his suggestion. Every family subscribed a specific quantity of food and drink according to their means. They put it all at Qasay's disposal and he supervised the arrangements by which all pilgrims were given enough to eat and drink. Qasay himself took part in the work and offered the pilgrims whatever the Quraysh prepared for them, bread, meat and various dishes. This increased the Quraysh's prestige and enhanced Qasay's honour. He in effect combined all the symbols of honour and leadership. No one could enter the Gaba unless Qasay himself opened the door for him. During the pilgrimage season, no one ate or drank anything except what Qasay provided. His honour was the Quraysh's honour. They loved and revered their leader. When Qasay died, the institutions he had established continued to prosper. The leader of the Quraysh was the most respected chief in Arabia. The Quraysh itself commanded a position of great respect. Qusay was succeeded by a number of able chiefs from his own offspring. They continued his traditions of looking after the tribe and taking care of pilgrims. That latter concern and the custody of the Kaaba were matters of great honour for the Quraysh. Hashim, Qusay's grandson, put hospitality to pilgrims on an unprecedented level. He was very wealthy and his hospitality was commensurate with his wealth. He told the Quraysh that he would not have asked them to contribute anything to the feeding of pilgrims had his own resources been sufficient for the purpose. That was great encouragement for his people to make generous contributions. Hashim got his wealth through trade. When he was the chief of Mecca, he was eager that all the Quraysh should benefit from his commercial expertise. He started the biannual commercial trips which soon became a well-established tradition of the life of Meccans. In the summer, a large commercial caravan went from Mecca to Syria and a similar went to Yemen in the winter. Each caravan was a joint enterprise in which all Meccan people shared. It brought profit to the people and prosperity to the city. Abdel Muttalib's leadership Hashim was succeeded by his brothers before his son, Abdel Muttalib, took over. Abdel Muttalib was the Prophet, peace be upon him's grandfather. He continued the traditions of the Meccan chiefs and proved himself a man of great integrity and an exceptional leader. His popularity in Mecca and in the whole of Arabia was unequalled by any of his predecessors. Abdel Muttalib continued the institution of Rifada which meant supplying pilgrims with food during their stay in Mecca and their fulfilment of the rites of pilgrimage. Providing them with water to drink, however, was exceptionally difficult. There were only a few scattered wells in Mecca, which hardly sufficed for the needs of its own population. Fetching the water from these wells and carrying it in leather sacks and containers was a hard task. Abdul Muttalib thought carefully about a solution to the problem. He would have given anything for any method which would guarantee the provision of enough water for the pilgrims. One night, as Abdel Madalla was concentrating his thoughts on this problem, he was overtaken by sleep. 
In a dream, he heard someone saying to him, Abdul Muttalib, dig the good one. He asked, what is the good one, but received no answer. The following night, he heard the same voice telling him, Abdul Muttalib, dig the blessed one. He asked, what is the blessed one? Again, he received no answer. The third night, the same voice told him to dig the treasured one. Again, he received no answer to his question about what he was supposed to dig. All day long, he thought about those cryptic messages. He felt very uneasy about the whole thing, which was becoming an enigma to him. He was reluctant to go to sleep the next night, lest he should hear more of these mysterious words. He prayed that the whole question should be resolved one way or another. In his sleep that night, Abdul Muttalib heard the same voice telling him, Dig Zamzam. He shouted angrily, What is Zamzam? This time, he received the answer he was seeking. The voice told him that it was this water spring which would be sufficient for the needs of pilgrims and gave him enough signs to determine its exact position. Abdul Muttalib woke up very happy and full of hope. The place was between the two hills of Asafa and Al Marwa, where pilgrims did their walking duty. In those pagan days, the Arabs had an idol placed on each hill. Isaf was the idol on top of Asafa, and Naila was placed on top of Al Marwa. In pre-Islamic days, the Arabs made their sacrifice at that particular spot. That morning, Abdul Muttalib went to the place with Al Harith, his only son. They bought all the digging equipment they needed and Abdul Muttalib began to dig while Al-Harith helped him with clearing the sand. Alarmed by the digging, many people from the Quraysh came over. They told Abdul Muttalib that he could not dig in that spot, so close to the Kaaba and to their two idols. He explained to them that he was only doing what he was bid. They did not accept his pleadings and indicated that they were prepared to prevent him physically. Some of them told him that he had only the one son, while they had many children. This was very painful to Abdul Muttalib. He prayed God to give him ten sons to support him and give him the protection he needed. He even pledged that should he be given ten sons, he would sacrifice one of them for God's sake. Abdul Muttalib's position, his earnest pleadings and his apparent distress moved those Qureshi people to change their attitude. They let Abdul Muttalib continue his digging, but no one helped him. He continued to dig for three days before he began to sense a feeling of despair. He even began to doubt whether the voice he had heard on those four nights was a voice of truth. When thoughts of stopping the whole enterprise began to press on his mind, one shovel stroke hit something metallic. That renewed Abdul Muttalib's hopes. He went on removing the sand around the metallic object, and soon he discovered two gold deer and a quantity of shields, swords and weapons. He recognised that these were the stuff buried in Zamzam by the Jurhum when they left Mecca. He continued his digging with renewed strength and soon he found the well. He shouted, God is supreme, this is indeed Ishmael's well, this is Zamzam, the drinking water of pilgrims. When the Quraysh heard Abdul Muttalib's shout, they realised that he had found the water and rushed to him claiming a share in everything he had discovered. Abdul Muttalib told them that the gold and the weapons did not belong to anyone. They were offered as gifts to the Kaaba and they would remain so. No one was to have anything.
The water, however, was his, and nobody else had any share in it. After all, he was the one given the information which determined its exact spot and selected to dig it. The Quraysh told him that it was the well of their grandfather, Ishmael. It belonged to them all. He could not claim it all for himself. There was much argument on this point. Being a man with a keen sense of justice, Abdul Muttalib suggested that they should choose an arbiter. If the arbiter ruled that the water belonged to them, he would relinquish his claim. If the arbiter ruled in his favour, they would do likewise. They felt that this was fair and accepted arbitration. Dispute referred for arbitration. It was customary at that time to refer such disputes to fortune tellers and people who claimed supernatural abilities. A report exists by Ali ibn Abi Talib who, like the Prophet, was Abdul Muttalib's grandson. This report indicates that they all agreed to refer the matter to a woman fortune teller from the tribe of Sa'ad Hudaym, who lived near Syria. The Quraysh chose a delegation of 20 men from different clans. Abdul Muttalib also had a 20-man delegation from his clan, Abd Manaf. They travelled together through some well-known routes and desert areas where there was no established track. While they were travelling in one such desert area, they lost their way. Soon, all the water Abdul Muttalib and his delegation had was finished. They were extremely thirsty and were certain of death unless they could find some water. They asked the other delegation to share their water with them, but they refused. Their excuse was that they were all in a desert area and they feared the same fate for themselves. In his desperation, Abdul Muttalib asked his men what they thought they should do. One man said, we are certain of death. If we were to continue travelling, we should die one by one, and we shall be lost without a trace in this desert. Let us stay here, and let every one of us dig his own grave. When any one of us dies, we will push him to his grave. In this way, only the last one may be lost. This is better than all of us being lost. Who knows, our people may find our graves one day. They accepted this suggestion and started to dig their graves awaiting their death. Abdul Muttalib, however, told them to await death so passively without doing anything to try and avert it is indeed the worst option we have. Who knows? God may give us water in some place or another. Let us move on and hope to be rescued. They picked up their belongings and prepared their camels, with the other delegation looking at them. Abdul Muttalib mounted his camel and signalled her to rise. As she started to move, a spring of water gushed forth from under one of her hooves. Abdul Muttalib and his kinsmen shouted, God is supreme. They dismounted and drank their fill, then filled all their containers. Abdul Muttalib then called on the Quraysh people to drink and take all the water they needed. He said to them, God has given us this water, come along and drink. When they had done so, they said to him, God has given his verdict in your favour, Abdul Muttalib. We will never dispute your rights to Zamzam. The one who has given you this water in this desert is the one who has given you Zamzam. Let us go back and we pledge to honour your rights to Zamzam. They turned back without continuing their journey to meet the fortune teller. Zamzam remained the sole property of Abdul Muttalib and his offspring. They in turn continued to use it to provide water for pilgrims. Many years passed 
and Abdul Muttalib had his dearest wish fulfilled. He now had ten sons, all of them adults. In addition, he had six daughters. In all, Abdul Muttalib had five wives. One day, Abdul Muttalib summoned all his sons to tell them about his pledge to God, which he had made while he was digging Zamzam. He said it was time that he fulfilled this pledge by sacrificing one of them to God next to the Kaaba. They all expressed their readiness to submit themselves to be sacrificed. It was then a matter of choosing one of them. He suggested that they follow the Arab custom, have a toss between them administered by the man in charge of the Kaaba. They all went to him for the toss. Abdullah was the youngest of Abdul Muttalib's sons. He was also the dearest one to him. He was a young man of great promise, mild temperament, very sociable, not given to wild practices, and at the same time he was a man of high moral values. All these qualities endeared him even more to his father. The old man therefore thought that if Abdullah could be spared, the pain of sacrificing one of his other children would be a little less. The toss, however, came out against Abdul Muttalib's desire. It was Abdullah who had to be sacrificed. By that time, Abdul Muttalib was a very old man and had been the chief of Mecca for a great many years. He had no hesitation in fulfilling his pledge. He took his son by the hand and took his knife and went to the mosque to sacrifice him. One of Abdullah's sisters tried to pull him away. She was shouting and screaming, appealing to the Quraysh to save him. She cried and screamed and appealed. A number of Quraysh men were moved to act. They went straight to Abdul Muttalib and said to him, you shall not slaughter him until all alternatives have been explored. When Abdul Muttalib protested that it was a pledge he had made to God and there was no choice for him in the matter, they pointed out the serious danger which they saw his action would bring. They told him, you are our leader, you are well respected in the whole of Arabia. If you were to sacrifice your son now, your action would be imitated by others. Many a man would bring his son here to slaughter him. That is bound to weaken us and cause havoc in our society. Al-Mughira ibn Abdullah, who belonged to the same clan as Abdullah's mother, said to Abdul Muttalib, only when we have determined that there is absolutely no alternative may you sacrifice him. If it is possible to pay a large ransom for him, we will certainly pay it, no matter how large it is. Some men from the Quraysh counseled Abdul Muttalib to wait until he had seen a woman fortune teller in Yathrib who was known to have contacts with the jinn. If she could find a way out of the problem, he would spare his son. If not, he could still fulfil his pledge. When the fortune teller was well appraised of the story, she asked Abdul Muttalib and his companions to wait for a while until she had referred to her jinni. Abdul Muttalib was praying God all the time to spare his son. Although he could not see how that might be done, he still held to his faint hope that a solution could be found. It was not long before the woman found that solution for him. She asked him, how much they paid as blood money for someone who was killed accidentally. They replied that they gave ten camels. She said, Go back to your town and arrange a draw to be made between your man, meaning Abdullah, and ten camels. If the draw comes out against the man, add ten more camels. Continue to do so, as long as the draw comes out against him. 
when the draw shows that the camels are accepted, this means that your God has accepted the offering and spared your man. You slaughter those camels as a ransom for him. That concludes the second part of this chapter, A Glance Back in History. Join me for the final part in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening.